This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Have you ever stopped to wonder what exactly success means to you? Is it money, fame, power, all of the above or none at all? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Redefining Success, a show where we speak to passionate people from various fields about their lives, what makes them tick and what the word success means to them. On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Sarinda Palkal. She's the Dean for the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sarin. How are you doing? Very well. Thank you, Dashran. Thank you for having me on the show. Let's start with the big picture uh, question, Dr. Surin, that I like to start this show with. Mm-hmm. When you hear the word success, what does that word mean to you? I, I've got very um, ambiguous feelings towards the word success okay. uh, because one person's success isn't another person's success. Right. So at a personal level, I, I'm averse to the word success. <laughs> I have a goal. Mm-hmm. If I achieve it, fine. If I don't achieve it, I either push the goal back or I have a new goal. Just speaking generally, I I'm not very fond of the word success. Why and so? Mainly because of the baggage it carries. Maybe because I'm a linguist, right? Right. And so when I see the word success, I feel that it's very. People tend to want to measure it. Hmm. People want to have set targets for it. You know, I, I have to be married by this, you know, by this date or this age. I have to have a house. I have to have so many kids. I should be having a certain amount of, uh, you know, in my KWSB or in my pension. So people tend to measure it. But I feel that that success or achievement, if you want to put it that yeah. way, isn't measurable. Right. One, to some extent, it, there is a certain sense of measurability, mm-hmm. but to others' ex- uh, uh, extent, I don't think there is a sense of measurability that you should be imposing on it. And I think that's very interesting because you're the first guest we've had on the show who said that they're averse to the word success. And I think that's very interesting, right? Has your perspective of success changed over time? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. When mm-hmm. I was a child, I, I bought into the whole idea of success, you know, mm-hmm. but I didn't have an idea of success. My idea of success was my parents' idea of success. Right. Um, society's idea of success. At that point, if you were a student, you were in school, success meant getting so many great A's, you mm-hmm. know, in Form 3, it meant getting so many A's. Form 5, you got to get so many A's. Form 6, you got to get this many A's. You must be able to make it into university, into the course that you desire. Right. That is a measure of success. It was always somebody else's definition of success, somebody else's measure of success for me. I took it on. Mm-hmm. And I think most people do take it on because at that point you're not actually thinking you're still growing you don't you haven't grown into yourself yet you know so you're still thinking about it and you do take this on but as time goes by you you start thinking about it and say hey what is success to me you know for me success was um, in 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 form five for my family it was you know doing really well in spm but Mm -hmm. then i i i did okay right (laughs) in some areas i did really well in some areas i didn't do too well and then i sat back and i said hey why is it that i didn't do too well in these areas and then i realized hey i wasn't cut out to be a scientist in that sense i didn't want to do the sciences i wanted to do the arts and here i was doing the sciences Mm -hmm. so then i shifted my perspective and went into the arts in uh, form six and even then okay fine 
now you've got to get enough to get into the university. And then I sat back and I thought, you know, when the, always when the results come, this is always retrospective. Right. When, you think, when you're in the process, you're just focused on mm -hmm. what you need to do. And then when the results came out, I looked and I said, hmm, no, I didn't do too well in accounting and econ economics, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I passed, obviously, but I didn't do too well in it. Is that what I really want in my life? And then I realized that I was doing really well in literature. I was really doing well in, in, in English, in, in Bahasa, in anything to do with language. So then I realized that maybe, hey, you know, success here means that I should be developing on what is innately um, talent in me, the innate talent right. in me, right? And if I develop that, hone that, rather than working on somebody else's version of success, where I would probably try to, you know, uh, to do something that I can't do, it's, I think it's that saying, right? You can't teach a fish to climb trees or something mm -hmm. like that, right? Yep. I, I, I shouldn't be doing that. That's somebody else's idea of success and not mine. So, right. yeah. So then that's when I, I, I changed and I started as I grew older, as I got my degree, as I got my first job and moved on from it to a second job. And then I did my master's, my PhD, my idea of success started changing. Um, it changed more drastically when I became uh, part of the management team. Right. Right. It became more drastic because then the success was no longer just mine. Right. It was somebody else's. I was actually responsible for somebody else's achievement rather mm -hmm. than success. So, you know, um, that's how I started seeing things. So right. it was a gradual movement from something individual, but not mine, but to somebody else's uh, achievement. Do you remember when you fell in love with, with linguistics, with, with language and also when did you decide? So I'm, I'm, I want to get two points in okay. your life, right? The right. first point is when you fell in love with language. Right. And the second uh, point is when did you decide that your entire career is right. going to be centered around language? It wasn't just one point, I feel. It mm -hmm. was several points and it was several people who were, uh, you know, part of it. Right. Uh, the first was when I was, I think I must have been about eight years old when one of my school friends, you know, um, thrust a book in my hand and said, you know what, you don't read too much. Here, read this. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I realized that, oh my God, I love this book. You know, it wasn't so much the story as the words. It was just, they just clicked with me. Do you remember what was, book it was? Oh, God, I don't. I don't right. remember what it was. But what I do remember is a couple of years later, I must have been about, about 11 maybe, mm -hmm. when I started reading Roots. Ah. And I fell deeply, deeply in love with words, with the way it, the, the whole story, Roots came out for me, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I, I guess I was pretty young for Roots at that point. <laughs> right. So, but, yeah, but I did. I mean, I really connected to mm -hmm. it. The other point was when my mom, she was a school teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, she and my dad constantly took us every weekend to uh, the bookshop. And at that point, there was a very famous bookshop in Brickfields called Antonian's Bookshop. Mm. And we went there every weekend and we bought books and we read them. And so I think that helped for me uh, to love language. And uh, it, was, um, it was just a gradual progression after that. And uh, I have to say, though, I loved, as much as I loved language, I loved reading books. I hated poetry. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand why people had to write the way they did, but it didn't make sense to me. But when I went into university, I had a tutor mm. who taught me poetry. And suddenly it became alive. It was because of her. And suddenly I fell in love with language all over again because I realized that, you know, the figurative language, the, the, your imagination runs wild with just poetry alone. So, yeah, so there were many points 
along the way right. that uh, I fell in love with language over and over. And I still do. And why teaching and lecturing, right? Because it's it's one thing to to just be, you know, passionate about language that can take you through to many different careers. You can, uh, you know, you, you, you can be a poet, you can uh, write novels, um, you can even be, you know, in a way you can go into like uh, journalism and, and things like that. Like a lot of journalists are, are you know, huge, uh, uh, you know, they love language to, to such a high degree. Why get into teaching, lecturing that, that space? I don't know you heard of this saying, love doesn't disappear, you work at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I guess me and lecturing, teaching, that was what happened. I didn't just right. fall in love into it uh, with it. I actually walked into it by accident. Right. I got a degree. What do I do now? Oh, look, job offer. <laughs> Let's go for it. It was Mara College of Higher Education. Right. And I was, I was about 24, 25, and I was teaching people, uh, young, uh, young adults. They were about... 19, 20, almost mm-hmm. my age, and I clicked with them. I loved teaching them English, you know, and we had to have long chats and things like that. And that's when I realized that, hey, maybe this is something I want to do. All right. I I, I liked writing, but mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed teaching as well. And as I grew, I mean, as I went into teaching after that and uh, went into lecturing, once I got my PhD, I went into lecturing, I started focusing not so much on teaching language, but what parts of language I wanted to teach, like the study of language. I didn't, right. I wasn't no longer focused on teaching, say, English or, or Spanish or whatever. I was focused on teaching what's behind the language. Why do people say what they do? What is their ideology, their thought processes? So that was what I was focused on. Right. And, and that I'm passionate about that today. Mm-hmm. I'm really passionate about that because I feel that language is the window into a person's soul. Right. right? And um, and that window allows us to see their thought processes, to try and understand them, or to try and challenge them in different ways. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why I go yeah. for it. That's why I still teach. I still lecture today. And what's the most fulfilling aspect of that? Um, when a student, after a few years, turns around, comes back to you and says, "I remember your class. I really enjoyed it. You made me think." Or if another student in class tells me, hey, Dr. Surin, I can't go watch a movie without your 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 words in my head. <laughs> I am dissecting everything. Right. I'm deconstructing everything. And I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. That yeah. makes me feel really good that mm-hmm. I actually did something right. Yeah. What would you say, uh, because you, you've been doing this for uh, uh, you know, quite some, yeah, the longest of time now. And, yeah. and now you're the dean of, a, of the faculty and, and all of right. that. What? would you say are the key qualities you need to be a good lecturer? And what is your philosophy of that, of teaching, of lecturing? Knowing what your students need. Mm. What they want and what they need. Not what I feel they want or they need. Very often, that's how people define success, isn't it? Mm. When we were young, our parents feel that we need this. They didn't make the decisions for us. But uh, a lecturer, you're at that point, you know, at the university or even in schools, I think you need to listen to what your students need, what your students want. And they do have ideas. Sometimes they don't. You can guide them along. This is where you're a mentor, mm-hmm. right? But at lots of points, you need to start listening to what they need in their lives, not what you think they need. That makes, for me, a good lecturer always understands that. And then is able to deliver the lesson to the student in the way that the student understands it, in the way the student feels like, hey, this is important to me. This is irrelevant to my life. 
On the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Balkor, Dean for the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. After the break, I ask her how she measures growth. We'll be back on Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Redefining Success. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Associate Professor Dr. Surinder Palkor. She's the Dean for the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. So, Dr. Surin, I want to ask a little bit, bit about your family because like you, you know, I think like you mentioned, you know, like everybody has their ideas of success and parents, um, sometimes they try to impose um, even yeah. if their, their intent intent may be good, but but they are trying to impose their ideas of success onto yeah. you and and all of that, and you know in 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 Asian cultures, um, you know the the priority when it comes to let's say um studying and and all of that, the focus everybody says you know you go and you must be a doctor, lawyer, engineer, mm-hmm. and things like that. How did you convince your parents to let you go down this path? Did you have to do some uh, any convincing yourself or were your parents like, you know, go for it, do whatever you, f- you feel like it? All right, Let, let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a very complex background, okay. all right, where my dad uh, was a police officer, mm-hmm. but he was not terribly ambitious. He didn't measure success in terms of promotion. He got promotions and he turned them down, really. He was happy ah. doing what he wanted to do. He says, mm-hmm. if I got a promotion, I have to do this, 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 and I really, I want to do this. This is what I want. Right. My mom, on the other hand, was a headmistress, so her idea of success was very different. Students have to do really well, so on. So I got a little bit of both here. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, that, I think that's what shaped my life uh, in many ways and uh, shaped my ideas of success and to the fact that I, I'm averse to the word success and I prefer the word achievement. Um, yeah, when I was young, I think I kind of took on board what my mom wanted, where success was concerned, you know, but she wasn't, she didn't have unrealistic expectations either. Mm-hmm. She just wanted me not to fail, yeah. right? But I think my mom wanted me to be a teacher, a school teacher mm-hmm. like her. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I didn't. So I, I had to sit her down and say, look, that's not what I want to do. I am fairly certain, even if I end up teaching, it's not in schools. I don't want to teach in school. I want something more for myself. I, and I'm not in no way disparaging teaching in schools. All right. I'm just knowing myself that I'm pretty impatient. I don't think I'll do well with young children. Right. Right. And uh, so I, I, it would be, you know, wrong to inflict myself <laughs> on them, you know. And uh, so we talked about it. And then I said, look, let me do my master's. This is after my, my, my bachelor's. Let me do my master's and we see what happens after that. And uh, I think my mom was content to let me be and uh, find my own path. My dad always wanted me to find my own path. So, you know, it worked out. I think yeah. that's really great. Dr. Srin, tell me about your lecturing journey. How long did it take for you to become, you know, where you are right now, dean of a faculty? Mm. Um because I, I guess one of the reasons I'm asking this question is because sometimes when people see like, oh, you're doing something you love, okay, that means you're having a blast all the time. You know, that, right. that sort of um, simplistic take on it. Uh, how much did you have to struggle? How much determination did you have to, you know, have to come, you know, to, to come, you know, the, to go the distance that you have gone? Or was it something that just happened very naturally? Um, you know, you kept progressing very naturally and organically and, and you had fun all the way because it is something that you genuinely love. Okay. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Hmm. 
there were, you know, my, my journey has been quite organic. Right. Um, you know, I've moved from one phase to another. As, as I have grown, my journey has changed. My path has changed, right? As I said, I started off teaching language. Right. And then, um, you know, when I got into research and started doing work and having gone to uh, Berkeley, where I met uh, this, this wonderful academic named Norman Fackloff, and he opened my eyes to um, this whole field called critical discourse analysis. And uh, so then I headed towards that right. so there were moments people who were influential mm-hmm. right uh, in my life and um, i think the thing i had to struggle the most was for my phd really because i was clear if i was going to lecture i have to have that you can't have a master's yep. at the university you need to have a phd so i was very focused on that and it, and uh, there were a lot of colleagues who had were doing their phd some had finished some had not so for me there was no two ways about it. It was something I needed to do and it was something I had to finish. I had to finish. So the four years where I worked on my PhD, I started off enjoying myself, but towards the end, it was work. I was eating, sleeping, drinking my PhD. I slept with my my laptop under my bed. I'd wake up at one in the morning, having gone to bed at 12, 12 one in the morning with ideas, and then I'll start working. And next thing I know, it's three in the afternoon the next day. Mm-hmm. So time had no meaning for me. It was just that goal that I had to do, I had mm-hmm. to finish, I had to focus on. But that journey was very useful for me because that journey, I think, built something in me and I grew and uh, I realized that I get this right because um, my, my PhD wasn't like other people's PhD. Most other people's PhDs will, um, this is where I was different again. Um, most other people's PhD, you would have the normal, right? I've got, this is my research question. This is my methodology. This is my data. This is my analysis. This is what I found. I'm done. All right. I had about four or five different things I wanted to do, <laughs> and I wanted to do them all. <laughs> so I sat down with my my supervisory uh, panel, and then I talked about it. In the end, they said, "Look, Serene, there's nothing wrong with you being doing what you want to do. Break the mold. Do something different. Don't go down to the traditional PhD." So I did that. And what I ended up doing was I was three mini PhDs in one thesis in in one major thesis, completely separate from each other with only one thread running through. Wow. So it was different. It was still different. It's still Mm -hmm. very different. Most people would not have had the courage to do that. I didn't have the courage to do that, but I had very strong support. Right. And so this is what I say by achievement with that support. For me, that PhD was a huge achievement, not because I got that PhD, but because I did it differently from everybody else. Right. You know, I, right. I did it differently. And that the key thing about PhD is the originality mm-hmm. um, and doing it completely different from the other conventional PhDs, being very conceptual in nature. Uh, it was different. Yeah. So it moved on from there to so in lecturing as well. Absolutely. So yeah. I will say uh, the journey to being dean was... Um, yeah, more organic. I think right. I moved from uh, from from you know one position to another, coordinator to to things like that, and uh, I became the deputy dean after my my uh, you know a, a close colleague of mine uh, asked me to become her deputy dean. She was the dean, right? And um, it was a tough choice. I had to think about it because I wanted to teach, and I knew going into management you wouldn't be teaching so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I made that decision. I haven't looked back. I have right. not looked back, and I have found myself finding different uh, levels of achievement in myself, um, looking for achievement in others. And I think it fits in very well. However, I will say the imposter syndrome is still very strong. <laughs> so when I really became, at this at this phase of your career, as well? right now, I'm more I'm I'm I'm, um, 
I have managed to 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 come to terms with it. But mm-hmm. when I first became dean, um, you know, and I still remember the day that when I became dean, I got a text message from uh, someone at the faculty, and she she received the letter, and she taken a, a snapshot and she sent it to me, and I looked at it, and I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what what what, what is this? You know, <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe it. And uh, obviously, the others at the meeting had already known about it. So when I'm like. Puzzled, I showed it to them. I was in shock, really. Um, the imposter syndrome was definitely there. And I had a chat with my deputy vice chancellor at that point. And it's like, mm, are you sure you guys are doing the right thing? And she's like, get rid of that imposter syndrome. You know? <laughs> it's there, but it's it's common with many people right. uh, who have moved up. Yeah. Mm. Now, you know, you've gone through like different phases in, in your yeah. personal journey with language and as well as your career. And... Right. I'm guessing that in different phases, um, different things drove you to to do what you're doing. Where you are right now, what drives you to keep doing what you're doing? And also, having done this for so many years, how do you find ways to keep things fresh and interesting for yourself? Mm. What drives me? Responsibility and service. Mm. I'm in this position. I like it or not, I have a responsibility. Right. And uh, my responsibility is being um, responsible for the measure of success of all the others. All right. And I won't call it success because, you know, it's academics have got different ways of measuring success. Right. So, but as much as I don't buy into that whole idea of measuring success, I am also responsible for the measuring um, measures of success for people who work uh, at the faculty mm-hmm. for whom I am responsible for. That drives me. And uh, bringing, needing the faculty to come up to a space where where it's resilient, where it is ach- uh, capable of achieving growth no matter who's there. If I'm there, somebody else is there, it can still achieve growth because that particular um, culture of, of uh, wanting to improve yourself, continuously improve yourself, it's already there. So if that's something I can instill in everyone, if that's something I can put in place, and I'm trying, all right, um, I think I have achieved something really, really good. Right. Um, but there is also this other aspect, the other hat that I put on, where when I talk to the upper management, I am talking about growth areas. I am talking about 30% growth in the next year, right. 150% growth within five years. I am talking about that, something more measurable. But there's also the people growth where I I know that they have got specific measurable targets, but those are their targets. But I am responsible for motivating them to get to those targets. Right. And that's my achievement. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced throughout your journey? Um, I, I would say where students are concerned, mm-hmm. um, one of my biggest challenge is trying to um, help students who face a lot of difficulties, whether right. it's financial or it's emotional or it's uh, mental health mm-hmm. uh, difficulties. And... Um, I I think for a lecturer, for a dean, I think whether it's students or staff, that is something you need to really, really reach out for. If you've got, you know, you've got so many people under your 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 belt, if that sense, you know, your, your family, you're taking care of them, just that we take care of family at home. Uh, you need to make sure that they're okay financially. Mm-hmm. Reach out to them. They're okay emotionally. They're okay mentally. Um, we've had students who suffered from um, all kinds of um, mental health conditions and things. And this is pre-COVID. 
and COVID just made things worse for them. Um, and um, I think that was my biggest challenge. Right. How, how do I'm not trained to be a counselor. Right. I am a lecturer. I'm mm-hmm. an academic. Mm-hmm. But I have to help in one way or another. And even if it means that just I just hug them and hold them while they're crying their hearts out, um, feeling helpless, I still right. feel that's something I need to do. Do you I feel that to- sometimes this part of your job is more important than the other part where, of course, you need to know your stuff in terms of language and, and research and, and all of that. But the part that really leaves uh, an, an, an imprint on, on the students' mm. lives is the other part. Yeah, it's, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. The, the thing that leaves the imprint on the other part on students' lives is not just a lecturer who taught you in a fun way. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they enjoy it. They've learned something. Their right. knowledge has grown, right? Mm-hmm. They will remember that. But they also remember the the personal outreach. Right. They remember the relationship that you established with them. And for me, you know, when I'm on stage during graduation convocation, um, it's it's amazing seeing them get their scrolls and walk by. And as they walk by me, they actually bow their heads and say thank you. And I'm I'm moved to tears at that point. You know, hey, I I reach this person in one way yeah. I made a even if it was the tiniest bit of difference in their lives I made a tiny bit of difference in their lives mm-hmm. yeah. what has on, on the flip side we, we talked about you know yeah. the biggest challenge what is your proudest moment okay the proudest moment wow <laughs> several several okay. yeah. one is my own personal proudest yeah. moment when I um, I got my PhD degree. Now you have to remember, most people feel that the moment you submit or you finish your viva, they told you you passed that's the proudest moment for your PhD journey. No, it's not. You're like deflated at that point. My, your whole life has been about the PhD. <laughs> and suddenly they told you you passed. And now I'm like, what do I do with my life? I don't know, <laughs> you know? Right. And then you try to get into back into work again. You try to do things. But the one proud moment was when I actually went up on stage myself to get my PhD. And that point, just that three seconds, I said, hey, this is an achievement I'm really Absolutely. proud of. But the most proud moment of my life, I mean, there are other moments, uh, moments when my students perform mm-hmm. and they perform and you know, they're not ready two days ago and I'm practically like pulling my hair out. But that night they pull it out of their bag and they do a really fantastic job and everyone has enjoyed themselves. That's a proud moment in my life. Right. But the proudest moment in my life was, was when one student, um, she was suffering from PSDD. Right. Um, she was from Syria. And uh, obviously, knowing what happened in Syria, she was she had come out, but her family members were still there. And she was really struggling with it. So when she was referred to me uh, by her supervisor, I, I called her in and had a chat with her. And I knew that this girl was not going to be able to finish her studies. She needed time off. So um, I... I helped in the sense that I got her into um, UH. I've managed to convince her to go to uh, PPUM Mm -hmm. because, you know, this is not something that we can deal with. So she went. But in the same time, I I did keep the lines of communication open. Uh, She withdrew from the semester. We gave her the, the possibilities of doing all these things. A year and a half later, she comes back to me and she says, I'm back. I finished two papers. I passed them. I'm heading towards finishing my this my 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 degree, my master's degree. And you know what? She hugged me and she said, "Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for forcing me to do what I needed to do." And uh, that's my proudest yeah, moment, really. Absolutely really. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's 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 hard to quantify. How do you quantify yeah. growth? How do you quantify this much money with that one person who comes and tells you, thank you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, talking about quantifying, um, if, if, if it's even possible, right? Because again, yeah. I think different people uh, view these things differently. And, and you certainly, like when it comes to success, um, you know, what you said at the start is is you don't, like to you know put it in a box essentially right like you don't you're in a way you're also averse to the word success but um, you know everybody grows everybody has their journey where they where they grow and, and things like that now i've spoken to people where their definition of success is is tied to let's say you know money and they want to grow their business and empire and you know when they when when i when we talk about how they measure growth it is also in a way a lot of it's tied to that how do you measure growth? I measure growth in terms of achievements, mm. in terms of how how well or how in-depth I can do something right. that I set my mind to. Mm-hmm. If it means bringing in a little bit more money for the faculty or for myself, if I bring it in, I'm not talking about millions or billions, but if yeah, I can bring it in, then there is an achievement, mm-hmm. that there is a growth but not a personal growth in that sense. It's a growth that, hey, I know I can do this. I have the skills and ability to do this and I did it. Fine, it's done. It's dusted. Move on. Right. Move on. It's not my success. Right. It is the success that is there for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But, you know, talking about money and things like that, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Absolutely. I mean, it's your personal need yep. for, I mean, your, your, you, you think that, that uh, you know, you will live a better life, mm-hmm. you know, and I do believe that, yeah, you know, look at my life i've got you know something some amount of money that i'm that makes me comfortable yeah. in my life so it's it's fine uh, but i want to tell you a little bit about the story of romley burger I, I don't know okay. if you know about romley burger yes all right? yes but all what right. story is this okay. all right it was just a little story i mean it's, okay. it's not my personal story it's somebody else's story but um the the story is that um this this person wanted to build an a, a business enterprise for himself but mm-hmm. what did he do he went to look at the nighttime traders. He went to look at the people out on the street and he gave them something to do. He empowered them. Right. He empowered himself and he empowered them at the same time. So now you see Ramli Burger everywhere. You see this, you want to go at three in the morning to get a burger. There's a Ramli Burger stall somewhere. You can go get it, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, that's the measure of success. If you want to put it that way, right. achievement success. That it, you didn't just empower some, yourself you to get what you wanted, but in the process, you empowered somebody else. And that empowerment has made the whole change to their lives. Right. That's basically it. Absolutely. So I think they need to go hand in hand, that balance. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great. Now, you know, a lot of people, you know, growing up, they may have interest in various different things, including language, mm-hmm. right? But a lot of times, you the advice that you get from people, it can be parents, sometimes even teachers, uncles, aunties, neighbours, you know, they'll say, don't waste your time. You're not going to make money. You you cannot. Uh, there's no career uh, yeah. in this. Yeah. Um, you know, you focus on something more practical, uh, quote unquote. What advice would you give to people who are in love with language? They, they love, like, and they want to get into this field. Yeah. What advice would you give them? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. I mean, um, but if you want to, as I said, balance it with uh, material growth, with mm-hmm. material success, that's that's absolutely fine as well. So if you want to go into language, 
but you also want to do well, then you do that aspect of language that helps you do well. You do professional communication. You do things where you can build up at the same time, use language, go up, right, and do well. If you want to work on uh, writing, then go out there, do content creation, learn something about that. Or you can even go into computer science because at the end of the day, computer science is a language. Mm -hmm. The binary language of computing, right. programming and things like that. It is also a language. The world is vast. You can go into neuroscience. You can go into neurolinguistics. Again, it is language. You are working on so many different things. The medical humanities is so strong with us, you know. So expand your horizons. Don't just think of language as teaching English, teaching Bahasa. There's so much more. You can follow your heart. You can get some measure of comfort, material comfort at the same time, but you will really enjoy what you're doing. But you need to be careful. Right? You, if you sign yourself up for Japanese and you really cannot handle because Japanese is both script and spoken, mm -hmm. right? Then you will struggle. So you need to know what your own uh, abilities are. And if your abilities are towards something else, find that out first and head there. Absolutely. Now, yeah. you know, just one last thing before we wrap this conversation up. You've been doing this for many years. Mm -hmm. What has, What is it like doing something that you love? What does that feel like? Ah... <laughs> <laughs> uh... It's just an everyday thing. I wake up in the morning. Yeah, I got to go to work. You know, some days it's just routine. You're, yeah. you're just, oh God, I have to do, oh, I have a class. I'm ready. I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for mm -hmm. it. Um, and, and my heart is saying, I don't want to go into class. Does it sound contradictory? <laughs> this is something I love, but I'm saying I don't want to yeah, go into class. Yeah. I really don't want to go yes. into class. I don't want to have to deal with, you know, deal with mm -hmm. teaching. And then I go into class and everything changes. <laughs> everything changes. I start and I'm like in a zone and the students are in a zone with me. We're talking, we're discussing. And when I come out of there, hey, I just did well. I just, you know, and they did well. I, 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 I you know, so retrospectively, when you think about it, it was a great day. Right. It was a great day. You go into the day, you know, maybe a little bit of your heart is like sinking and going, oh, I'm tired. I can't do this. But then by the time the day ends, you realize there was something in that day that was fantastic. That was the reason why you did this in the first place. So, yeah, um, I, I won't say that this is a, you know, a, a hunky dory journey where every day I wake up and I can't wait to go into, you know, work. That day, almost every other day, it's like that, you know, right. right? Do I have to do this? Do I have to do this? And then I do it, even if it's not that great, even if it's a, you know, in, in, in other people's uh, eyes, it's a failure. But for me, there is no such thing as a failure or there's no such thing as a weakness. It's just an opportunity to improve, right? So um, you look at it that way. At the end of the day, you come back and say, hey, I had a great day. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Serene. You're most welcome. That was thank you so much for having me, Dasha. That was Associate Professor Dr. Serene Palkor. She's the Dean for the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Redefining Success, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.